Well, good morning. As you are finding your way to Jonah 3, so that you can follow along, I want to make sure I remind you of a couple things. First, uh, not too long from now, we will be having on February 15th what we call a Getting Connected class. And that's for all of you who've been visiting and you're thinking, I want to know a little bit more about this church. I'm not sure if I want to join. We have a lunch for you right after the second service here. Free, free food, right? That's a good deal. And you can come and find out all about our church. So that's coming up. We only do this every so often, so I don't want you to miss it. February 15th, right after Valentine's Day. Uh, and we'll have a nice lunch and we'll talk all about our church and you can ask any questions you ever want to ask. That's coming up. Uh, additionally, on the 20th, we're stoked because we're having a family room seminar. All of those out here who have been born or you've got kids, if for anybody, not just for parents, but it will have an emphasis on parenting. So if you want to help your grandkids as you are a grandparent, or if you are a young parent with lots of little kids, come join us on February 20th for a family room seminar right here when we're going to solve all your parenting problems. <laughs> no, that won't happen. Maybe in Sean's talk, maybe, but not when I speak. But we will be talking about these things, and we will be endeavoring to trust God in our parenting and help each other out. So that's coming up as well. Why don't we pray together? And uh, then we will jump into the text of Jonah 3. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, we do lift our hands up to you and, and say that the theme of your mercy is, is going to be our song today. What great hope that is as we look forward to the week and what we have in store for us. We can slow down and say, I want more of your mercy in Jesus Christ. And we see it. In your word as we study and we want to know it. We want to be assured of it. We want confidence in it. So I pray that you by your spirit give that to us now. As you meet us as Sean was saying. We don't come here just for an activity. Just to learn. We come here to meet you over this text. This is not school. This is not academic. It's a relationship. And so I pray that you remind us of that. Even as we search through your scriptures today. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Jonah 3, where we'll be. We all like stories of great human determination, human resolve, don't we? I was looking this week on um, the website called GoFundMe. Have you seen this? This is where anybody can go up and you can raise personal funds for any project that you want. Well, uh, a friend of mine was raising funds, and so I was there checking it out. I'd heard of it the first time I'd been there. And I was interested. I wasn't going to give money, but I was just interested in seeing. You know me, right? Now, uh, I wanted to see what types of uh, what types of ads got people interested to give money to somebody you don't even know, because that's the concept. You just put an ad. People go there and they fill up your money pot. And I was looking, and you know, twenty, ten thousand. That was a, a good. And there was one that stood out because there was three hundred thousand dollars given to this person. And I, I thought, what's going on here? Most of the causes on there are educational causes or medical problems. You know, I got cancer. I need to solve this. And so I thought, well, what's this guy named James? What's his story? I don't know if you've heard this. Apparently, it's somewhat famous. But I clicked on it. And this guy, James, he wants a car. <laughs> he wants a car. That's, that's all he's trying to get. And I thought, what in the world? You know, what, how come people are giving him this much money for a car? And I, so I read his whole 
bio thing there. And his deal is that this guy for the past 10 years lives in Detroit. So you've got the weather. For the past 10 years, he's been walking 21 miles round trip to work him back. All because he's a hard-working guy. He doesn't want to quit his job. And he doesn't want to go around begging somebody else that actually put up this site for him. And for 10 years, five days a week, he'll walk that round trip just to make enough money to provide for his family, but never to make enough money to save and buy the type of car that he wants. Man, I'm drawn to that. No wonder people are giving to this guy. Hard work, determination, we love that. Also heard this week about the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge. I don't know if you've heard that famous story, but in the 1800s, this man had a dream, John Roebling. He was an engineer, and he wanted to do what they said could not be done, was a massive, in the 1800s, expansion bridge connecting New York and also um, Brooklyn over the East River there. And uh, finally, he got permission, and he was uh, able to start this project. And he he, uh, grafted his son in, Matthew, who was also an engineer, and said, let's make this a father-son project and let's span this river like it has never been spanned before, make the world's longest bridge and all that. And uh, they started on this project that would take them uh, many years, 13 years to complete. And right at the start, tragedy struck. John, who was heading up the whole project as the chief engineer, was down on site and there was a ferry accident and his foot was crushed. He got tetanus and locked jaw and he ended up dying just days into this massive project. But his son, Matthew, who was second in command, took up the mantle of continuing this huge project. And then tragedy struck again on Matthew. He was diving so that they could dig the supports for the bridge. And he got the bends. And he came up and he ended up being almost paralyzed. He was blind. All he could use was one hand. But he still wanted to oversee this project. So he built an apartment overlooking the bridge. And he ran the whole thing for 13 years from his bedside, overlooking, he would make uh, hand communications to his wife because he was blind, couldn't speak right, and she would run all of the uh, engineering plans and all the changes down to the crew. And for 15, 13 years, they did this. It was an amazing story of this guy's sweat and determination and resolve. I was like, wow, this is fantastic. There's even a controversy you may have heard now in the media. Uh, the, dis- the, the, the disabled community is... Um, very upset because there's a trend in advertising now. I'm sure you've seen it that um, advertisers say you want to tell, sell a toothbrush. What you'll do is you'll have a flash to um, a disabled person. Maybe somebody has a disability in their leg and they're taking their first steps or they're running a race and they'll flash this up there. And the idea is that um, it's supposed to inspire you and then somehow that they're going to tie that into buying a toothbrush. Well, the the, the advertisers do it because it works. They know people love an inspiring story, but people in the disabled community are feeling manipulated. Like you're, People love this so much, they don't care about it. It's a complex issue, but it's a, it's a huge deal in advertising to how, would, how do we inspire people. They love inspiring determination stories. And I thought about this. I thought, why do we like these things so much? Well, I think it's more than just I want to be like that person or even more than our tendency as people to think that the human will can overcome everything. I think it's deeper than that. I think within these resolve stories, these determination stories, we actually see a glimpse of the image of God. We long, we were engineered, we were crafted so that we would want to see great determination, infinite 
resolve in the uttermost is attractive to us. And so we long for it on some level. The problem is we'll only find that in one place, and that's God himself. And so our problem is, as we try to live our lives, pulling ourselves up from our own bootstraps, so to speak, getting by on our own resolve, hoping that that's going to end up in our ultimate hope, but failing because we fall so short. So our goal today and what we see throughout the scriptures is God holding up his own resolve, his own determination. And he says, take confidence in that. Be attracted to that. And that will see you through to everlasting joy. And we see this in Jonah as we start in chapter 3. So with that in mind, let's read through this. And after we read through it, we'll, we'll go through some shades of resolve here that we see. We'll see how God is resolved um, in the uttermost here. So let's go ahead and read in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. And we've been studying through the whole book. If you're new here today, we've done chapter 1, chapter 2. God has shown many things. His ruling power, um, compassion on others will be a big theme next week. But today we see him uh, in his great resolve. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Jonah says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. I'll never forget in my home church, we used to have what we call college and youth Sundays, right? And that's when the college and youth just take over. They do all the music. Uh, you know, they collect the money. They greet people. You have a young man greeting you at the door. And there will even be a young man preaching, um, a college or youth guy preaching. And my friend once preached this text. And I, 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 don't, I have never forgotten it because he was a college guy. And he was young and he was active and he was trying to make a point visually. And so he actually ran and jumped. When he came to this point, he said, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Instead, he went the other way. And my friend takes off running and he jumps a little wall and he runs way back into the choir loft. And he starts saying, hey, here's Tarsus. And then he runs back across and jumps down the stairs, goes all the way by the wall and says, here's Nineveh. And everybody in this traditional church was like, oh, I can't believe you. But I remembered it. And that's the point of the first uh, chapter here is that Jonah has gone the other way and now God meets him again and says you need to go to Nineveh his point still stands Jonah had done everything that he could to avoid God's call he'd run the opposite way basically he had committed suicide when he said throw me off the throw me off the ship I'd rather do that than submit to God's will and God has still persevered he had resolved to make this happen. In verse 3, we finally see Jonah submitting to God's call. Look at that. So Jonah arose, being called multiple times. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. And twice in two verses, we've been told that Nineveh is a great city. What does that mean? Well, when we study ancient history, it was, a, it was a nice city, but it wasn't huge. Great city could mean here in Hebrew that it's an important city. It's great because it had a strategic purpose. Certainly, we'll find out that it's strategic to God. It's important to God. In verse 4, we get a little bit more glimpse. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now let's get the picture here of what Nineveh was. I'm going to try to put a picture on the 
behind me on the big screen a, um, yes, there's a little map of what Nineveh was. I'm going to go all mappy for just a second, but hang in there. Uh, because it's, it's helpful. Notice thinking about something about Nineveh here. All around it, it had a wall. It was well fortified. There's towers all around it. And it also had a river that ran through it, which was handy, not only for your water supply, but you can see there's a moat just like an old uh, King Arthur's castle or something. There's a moat that also protected the city so that if you were going to try to take it over, you're going to have to get wet and then climb the wall. And these were fighting people. They were good at securing a city. Uh, So good that when uh, it finally fell by some Kurds and some Babylonians 150 years after our story, they actually had to dam up the river so that it would overflow in the city and crack the walls and then they could get in. Uh, Okay, that's enough map. The point of all of that is that this is a very secure city. So if you've got the image of Jonah maybe smelling all like fish guts, you know, he's ragged, he just got out of the big fish's belly, staggers into town haphazardly and starts this street preaching campaign, that may not have been the way it happened uh, because the ancients had a protocol. They had a wall around their city and he was the enemy of the Ninevites, right? More likely... It was a custom situation. He would go to the gate. He would have to be checked in. He was a foreigner, right? They had policies. Typically, you had to give the um, the leaders of the city something if you were going to visit there. They would check you out. Sometimes this would take a day, we're told. Uh, and then he would be able and released to preach at different parts of the city. Why that's key to us is sometimes people can get the impression by this story that what made um, the chains in the Ninevites was this shocking uh, sudden appearance of a fish guy. Um, but probably it wasn't, didn't happen that way. Probably he had to come in and had this visa issues. He had to come in. He had to be, yeah, he had to be, uh, we know about that as our missionaries today. It's hard to go someplace in a foreign country. Jonah had these and yet God made a way for his message to be proclaimed here. Look at the message there in verse 4. In 40 days, Yet in 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. We're not sure if Jonah shared more than this, but we are sure this is what the author wants you to see. These eight words in English that carry a lot of weight. Nineveh is going down. It's going to be destroyed. Punishment is on the way. Wrath is coming. History tells us there's a lot of ways that God could have used his wrath here. A lot of common things that were going on that the Ninevites would have seen to think, oh, maybe God is going to come. And then they hear this message and they're terrified. For instance, there was famine in the land at that day. They could have thought God's going to use famine to wipe us out. There was wars going on every which way. They were surrounded by wars. Uh, again, they had a big wall up to prevent that. But they could have thinking could be thinking God's going to bring another army here to destroy us. A major earthquake happened around that time, so they could have been thinking, "Uh, we're going to be destroyed by God by an earthquake. Now, the point is, is in response to this message, they were terrified. Um, And so how did they react? Remember, these are pagan idolaters. They did not know God, but they had a sense of who he was. How did they react? Verse 5 has this. And the people of Nineveh believed God. In a very simple way, the enemies of God trusted him. They heard this message and they trusted that, yes, God is going to do what he says he's going to do, which is, in this case, overthrow us. 
And that's key. And we can tell that their belief was meant to be seen as genuine by the nature of their actions that followed the belief. Keep reading here. Um, They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The idea here behind fasting and wearing sackcloth seems so weird to us because we don't do that when we repent. Um, But the idea is you're throwing your whole self into this. You're putting a sackcloth. We have this uh, in some form today with method actors. You guys know method acting. Daniel Day-Lewis is famous for this. He made that movie, uh, Abraham Lincoln. He was Abraham Lincoln in the movie Lincoln. And uh, for a whole year, apparently, he became Lincoln. And he dressed like Lincoln. And he would send his friend text messages. And he would sign them A or Abe. On the set, he actually asked the director to wear a suit when he came to the set because you wouldn't dress slouchy in the presence of the president, right? This guy went over the top. But the sense is he's throwing himself into it, body and soul. And that's why we hear of uh, people fasting and putting sackcloths on. They're throwing themselves, body and soul, into this. When you fast, you hurt in your belly. When you have sackcloth, it's uncomfortable. So the idea is, I am wretchedly, I'm hurting. I'm a wretch before you, God. It's a physical symbol of what's going on in your soul there. And um, so this is their response. And soon in verse 6, Jonah's warning comes actually to the ruler of the city here. And we see this. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth. He sat down in ashes and he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh and said, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God and let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hand. And now repentance becomes a civil affair, right? The king demands that all the populace, from the least to the beast, repent, be involved in this repentance. And we're in these texts privy for the first time to the actual specific offense of the Ninevite people. We're told that it was violence related. We're not told any more details than that, but we can assume they were people of unjust violence and God would not have it. And so uh, that's why he announced the destruction. Verse 9 has the king wondering right up to the climax of the story. Who knows? Maybe if we do all this, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And so we're at the climax of the story here. How will God respond to these faith-filled acts of repentance? And will there be disastrous fire coming down? And will the city be smote, so to speak? Or will the king's hope actually be fulfilled and they are going to be saved? And we're answered in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Thus, we come to the end of the narrative and the climax of God in his supreme graciousness, holding back, resolving to hold back this anger. And as we see next week, that's the very thing that ticked Jonah off. He can't stand this about God. But this is where we're left at the end of chapter 3. God demonstrates his resolve to restrain the own punishment that these people deserve. And now let's look a little bit more closely now as we go back through the story at three 
instances, three shades of God's resolve that we see here. So here's the first one. Outline people. Here's the first point. God shows here His resolve to capture the nations. God is showing His resolve to capture the nations. If we're not careful when we read texts like this, we can miss the bigger picture. Uh, Think about what's happened in the story so far. God has called Jonah to go to a people who do not know Him. They do not have the law. They weren't given the prophets. They were characterized by evil and violence. They were enemies of God. That's who they were. They were the enemies of Israel. And yet, God called them, even though Jonah is bucking against this, the whole idea. In spite of this, when we land here in Jonah 3, we see that God is steadfastly repeating the same command that He did in Jonah 1. If you were reading all of the book at once, which we're not today, but you would see repetition here in in. in In Jonah chapter 1, he came and said something to uh, Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, call out against it. And here in chapter 3, he's saying the same thing. He's repeating himself because his resolve to capture all nations is intense. Why is that? Why is God so determined to go out and rescue and capture all nations? A couple of reasons. One is that he's committed to his own past promises. If you've read the Bible, you remember in Genesis 12... How God came to Abram and he said, I, through you and in you, I'm going to bless all the families, all the tribes, ethnicities of the earth. They're going to be blessed through you. He's going to bring a descendant, Jesus Christ, who's going to bring ultimate blessing, not just to the Israelites, but to every tribe and tongue and people. He promised that. In Genesis 12, it's a major theme that goes throughout the Scripture. And now God, when He comes to Nineveh, He looks back at this. And He says, I remembered what I promised you. I'm going to be faithful to my promises. And I'm going to resolve to capture this people. We see this throughout the the, uh, Scripture. King David, for instance, um, was a descendant, not of a purebred Israelite, but from a Moabite, somebody outside the kingdom from Ruth. Right in Micah chapter seven, we hear the prophets uh, reiterating this, looking forward to the day when uh, God would bring in all peoples from all races. Jesus Himself in John chapter ten, verse sixteen. Remember what Jesus said when He came. He said, "I have other sheep who are not of this fold." Talking to Israel, I must bring them in. He said, "His death was for all peoples, and God has a resolve for all." People based on his past promises. Also, another reason he does this is we know that God has resolved to capture all nations because it best highlights his glory if he does that. It best highlights his glory if he does that. Keep in mind how glory works sometimes. One way we measure it is by the glory of something as if it's universally appealing, right? If you judge something as great as if there's a common sense, universally everybody can look at it and say, it's great. Where I come from, in the fall on Saturdays in Knoxville, Tennessee, we all root for the same team. The college team, the University of Tennessee, especially if they're playing Florida. But any week, it's a big game because it's a college town. And we all get stoked about this big game with Tennessee, right? But someone in Colorado, they don't even watch it. Probably can't even find that game on in Colorado. They'll have to stream it online. But this week, this past week, we had the Super Bowl, right? Did you realize... Super Bowl tallied 28.4 million tweets just during the Super Bowl. 
28.4 million tweets about that. On Facebook, 65 million people during the game worldwide discussed the game. Everybody, they, they talked about the game. 65 million people. That's glory, right? That means it appealed to everyone. I sat there and I watched the game with a French person and a Chinese person and uh, somebody from India, I think. We were all there watching the game and they didn't even know the rules. And yet they were fascinated by the game. It's glorious. That's the way God is working here. If he only appealed to one people group, he would look less glorious. But if he makes himself appealing to this nation, this nation, this nation, nation, then they all rise up and worship him, celebrates his glory. And that's why he has resolved to capture the nations. It's so prevalent in the New Testament that if we don't get it, I think we're reading the Bible wrongly. All four gospel writers say this. They say they all have a great commission. You may have heard a commission in Matthew, but they all have a commission that said we as a church have to go out and bring in the Gentile, bring in the nation because it's so crucial. God is so committed to this. Uh, it pops up in Ephesians, Galatians. Pop, uh, Paul will write about, of course, in Revelation. First Peter writes his whole first. Uh, Peter writes his whole first letter to a church full of Gentiles, people who are outside the Jewish community. Because of this principle, he knows God has people he's going to capture in the nations. When you think about applying this, you think, well, what, why does that matter so much to us today? I'm not Jonah, right? Why does this matter to me? Well, a couple of reasons revolving around one word. The word is certainty. Certainty. The fact that God has resolved to capture the nations can give us satisfying certainty in a couple of ways. Here they are. First, you can be certain you trust in God and follow Him that you will go to heaven. The fact that He is resolved to capture people from all nations, that gives me the certainty that if I believe and I repent, I will go to heaven. Remember, most of us aren't Jews here. We're Gentiles, right? If God has decided to capture my nation and resolve to do it, it's going to happen. Think again about what Jesus said in John 10, 16. That I have other sheep. They're not of this fold. What does he say? I must bring them in, right? Certain. They will listen to me. That's certainty. There will be one flock according to Jesus. We can have certainty. No lack of confidence. No doubt here. Because Jesus, by God, has resolved to capture the nations. Your salvation is not based on whether or not you lost it and screamed at your little girl this week, right? When you ran once again to drink the poison and pornography online. Your salvation is not based on that. You haven't read your Bible in a week and a half. Your salvation, that's not your greatest hope. Your greatest confidence that God has resolved to capture nations for Himself and to rescue them. That's going to be my hope, right? Not in my own determination, but what God has determined to do. Another reason this matters is that you can be certain your missional efforts are not in vain. You can be certain your missional efforts are not in vain. About 10 years ago, we sent David Lane Coker to East Asia. Uh, and I remember talking to him before he left 10 years ago. He'd been doing the same project for 10 years now. I talked to him and I said, well, why are you doing this? Why? You could have done anything. You've got a degree in engineering. Your wife has a different degree. Why are you choosing this to do? And I'll never forget, he turned to me and said, I want my 
life to be a part of what God has already resolved to do. It won't be wasted. I want my life to count. And if I put it within the stream of God's resolve, then I know it will matter. Your missional efforts will not be wasted. So we see that God has resolved to capture the nations. Let's also look at God's resolve to condemn all evil. He has resolved to condemn all evil. Lest you thought this sermon was going to be all sunshine. This is the backside of the gospel here. God is resolved to condemn all evil. Sometimes I ponder what in the world would have happened had Nineveh not repented. There were no sackcloth. They just went on about this Jonah guy is a crazy man. What would have happened? Well, God's perfect holiness and righteousness had been offended by the people. He was serious about his judgment here. Don't think just because it didn't happen that he wasn't serious about it. Look again at the sermon with me, the short eight word sermon prophecy that Jonah gave. In 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. Even within that brief word, there are sure signs of God's judgment. For instance, the number 40. You might remember throughout Scripture, the number 40 is often associated with judgment. God saw in Noah's day, the uh, people were rebellious. And so he sent rain for 40 days, right? Israel felt God's displeasure uh, for 40 years after they lacked faith, spying out the promised land. Even when Samson was born, we have this flash that because um, Israel was rebellious, God would uh, punish them for 40 years. Ezekiel was made to lay down for 40 days to symbolize Israel's sin. This 40 is not a coincidence here. It's a proclamation from God that destruction because of people's evil is coming. Also, this word here, um, overthrown, this, this verbiage is also used earlier in the scriptures for cities that were going down. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, famous in Genesis for being destroyed because of their wickedness. God rained fire down on those cities and he overthrew them. Same words used here. So even the message here, the sermon assures us that God is serious about evil. And all the destruction talk did not stop in the prophets. It kept going with the coming of Christ. In fact, Peter says in Second Peter that these old tales of God's condemnation are going to serve us and assure us that there will be a future ultimate condemnation of all evil. This is a long text. I'm going to read some of it. Second Peter chapter 2, 4-10 if you want to look it up later. Peter's talking about this idea of God coming and condemning evil. And he says, verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, held of righteousness, even with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, verse 7, and if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteousness under punishment. Will keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Peter knew that this judgment wasn't just an Old Testament thing. He knew that it would. It was still going on and it was pointing towards a future time 
when God was going to judge all peoples. And here we see God holding two hands forward almost. There's one hand where he's holding open and he's saying, I'm going to get the people. I'm going to capture the nations that are mine. And he's got that hand out, but in the other hand it's a fist saying, I must still condemn evil. God holds both out at the same time. He's able to do that. Two responses to God's resolve to condemn evil came to my mind as I was preparing this. How do we respond to this obvious resolve of God to judge evil and sin? The first one is to turn, to spin like an Ninevite, spin like an in, right? Turn from your evil. Don't write that down. We'll edit, we'll edit that out of there. But you turn away from your rebellion. Ask God to show you your own need for change. Oftentimes we don't see it. Sometimes you do. You know exactly your bad habits. That's why we come down here and we pray and we kneel and we took time earlier to say, God, meet us here because I want to change. Other times we don't. Other times we need people. We need self-examination to see. There's a couple of questions that have been helpful for me. Sometimes I'll ask myself. Sometimes I'll ask others. What do I yearn for at the end of the day? What do I really want? What do I look forward to that's going to happen at the end of the day? When all my work is done, you know, before bed, I'm going to... What's going to be in that moment? What am I yearning for? Sometimes that will reveal some idols that you might have, right? Also, what do I fear will be taken away from me? What do I fear will be taken away from me? Again, the point of these questions is to reveal that you might be worshiping something other than God, which is evil, which is what he promises to condemn. Ask these questions of yourself. I found them both helpful. Another response to this idea that God has resolved to condemn all evil is to trust him to deal with evildoers in your life. That's hard, huh? Trust God to deal with the evildoers in your life. We all have them. We all have people who have stepped on us, who have hurt us either emotionally or physically, who have let us down. I remember an extreme time in my own life when I was younger and I was hurt. Someone had hurt me and hurt people that were close to me. And this was severe. I remember being so captivated by revenge that I was going to take flesh. I was going to pound for pound repay the hurt. I was young. I was a redneck, which means I was armed. I had a shotgun. That's dangerous. Seething. This guy hurt me. I remember one night as I was plotting my revenge, I, I was I was led by God to go and see a good friend, a good counselor. And so I went to him seething and I explained the situation, how I'd been hurt, my family had been hurt. And then I boldly explained my plan of action, which was sinful, more sinful than the hurt that was done to me. But I, I threw it out there and the counselor then said to me something that probably saved my life. He very wisely, after saying, hey, I would go with you, to get your revenge if it were not for God. I said, what do you mean? He, he read this verse from Romans chapter 12, verse 19. He said, beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, 
says the Lord. To the contrary, your enemy is hungry and feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coal on his head. What a word of trust in the vengeance of God. If you're prone to respond to someone who has hurt you, the trust point is that God is more just than you, right? His justice will be meted out. And it's far better or worse than you could have ever dreamed. Your role is to take faith in God's passion, His resolve, His determination, much more glorious than your determination to condemn evil. God's determination to condemn evil is pure, and we should trust in that. Now, we've seen how in Jonah 3, God's resolve to capture the nations and to condemn evil finally. I want you to see how God resolves to strain His wrath. The picture I've laid out so far, if you can picture in your mind, I was thinking about this as I was fixing to preach. Um, your mind may not be like this, but, you know, God, God is to say, uh, determined to capture a people. That, that's a really fuzzy thought to me. I was picturing this village in maybe the, a mountain scene like the Alps. The perfect picturesque Thomas Kincaid village there. There's lots of steeples, lots of colors. And, oh, wow, God had rescued a people, a whole village of people. And it's, the scenery is beautiful. This is just a beautiful thought. And then I thought about God going to condemn evil. And people are evil. And then I imagine this avalanche is coming right down the mountain on top of this village. It's a, it's a both hand. Yes, God is going to rescue people, but also He's going to condemn evil. The two fists collide. His, his desire to grab some and rescue them and the guy to perfectly punish all evil, they come together. And here's how they come together. God resolves to restrain His wrath. He's going to take the avalanche and He's going to restrain it. He's going to redirect the avalanche here. If you ever wonder what... Uh, if you're watching a movie or you're reading a book, what the message the author wants you to get, uh, look at the climax. Whatever somebody says at the, at the climax is, is the point of most stories. Most movies work that way. Here in verse 10, we have our climax. When God said what they did, how they turned from their evil, God relented of the disaster. His mercy, He's relenting. Such a relenting God's wrath is common in the Scriptures. Jeremiah 18 explains this for us. It's very helpful to text. Jeremiah 18, 7 through 8. If at any time, said God, I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break it down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. What's God saying? Simply, if you repent, He will relent. If you repent, He is going to relent of his anger. And that helps us understand how at the beginning of the chapter he can give a prophecy saying this will happen. And then at the end of the chapter it doesn't come true, right? This helps us explain it. Within the original prophecy there was a condition. He says, I'm going to throw this overthrow this city. The implicit condition is, well, unless you repent, unless you turn from your evil, then I'm going to show off my mercy and it will abound and you will worship me gloriously. And this is how God works. But what prompted such a withdrawal of this holy punishment? Well, clearly in verse 10, we see that they turned from their evil way, right? Repentance happened. But how did that come about? How did repentance work? Uh, did they 
give back exactly what they've taken from people in their violent act. There's no mention of that. That they become morally pure after this and start doing everything good. We don't hear that either. But what we do see in verse 5 is that they simply believed. Right? This is God's call throughout the scriptures. We see it in Abraham, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord and God counted him to Counted it to him as righteousness. Paul elaborates on this in Romans 4. This idea of believing and how essential it is. It depends on faith, he said. Paul, Romans 4, 16. Depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Verse 20 later. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning God's promises. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Later on, verse 21. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's the essence of this belief that triggers God's relenting. Now, rest assured, God is not merely responding to what people do. He has planned the story. He has ordained even the Ninevites change. That's a hard thought to wrap your head around. But God will relent if we believe and repent. And that's the good news, right? That's the good news of Jesus Christ jumping from the pages of Jonah. Only Jesus Christ can divert this coming avalanche on the people who have been chosen. Yet they are wicked. The question arises here, well, where did the punishment go in the story? Did God just, just say, ah, done with the punishment? No, the punishment is going to happen. God just swallowed it. He took it upon himself when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die as a substitute for the Ninevites' evil and for our evil as well. This is glorious. This is good news. Jesus has come to take our place because of our evil so that God can capture all who he wants to capture and his holiness is not forever offended by our holiness because we have the righteousness, the goodness, the purity of Jesus and this is out there. Jonah 3 is standing out there for all of us to grab hold of. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I say read this again. Think about your own evil. Think about how you've offended to God. And think about the offer of rescue that's available to anyone who will come and believe in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. And you can have this eternal bliss with God through Jesus Christ. This week I read the story of a guy named Mike Trapp. Caught my eye because this guy was about my age and he was also married to a woman named Julie, like I am. So I was reading through these stories and it came out, okay, I'll read this one. Unlike me, this guy is a, uh, a pilot. He flies personal planes. And even though he wasn't that good, um, Mike decided he was going to save the, um, not good, by not good, I mean he hasn't, wasn't experienced. He hasn't been flying for 10 years. He just uh, started, he just got his license. And he decided to save some uh, commercial fare to a family reunion up around Michigan and he's going to fly himself and to do it he was going to have to cross uh, Lake Huron, one of the um, great lakes there. And so he'd never flown over big water before but he says, I'm doing it. I'm saving the money. Takes off everything fine uh, until he's right in the middle of the lake and of course he has engine problems. What happened was his carburetor froze over and that's all I know because I'm not a plane mechanic. But that caused the plane to dive and he dipped it in the drink and it crashed. And within moments after it crashed, his whole plane sank 
And he didn't have a life vest. He just had himself there, out of shape, 40-year-old guy, and he's there in the water. And the water's not freezing, but it's cold. Uh, it is 60-degree-ish water. And actually, the um, U.S. Search and Rescue Task Force says if you're in the water that's that temperature, you have probably two to seven hours before you go unconscious. And so Mike has to make this decision. Am I going to swim for sure? Well, no, that's too far. I'll never make it. And the way the tides and the currents are working, I'll never get there. Or am I just going to tread water, eventually hoping someone will come? So he treads water for two hours, four hours, six hours. He starts going crazy. He's getting thirsty. Eighteen hours later, well beyond the time when um, he's supposed to be alive, he's found treading water by a passing boat. Later, people asked him, how in the world did you tread water for so long? And he said, I, I was determined to see my wife and kids again. That kept me going when my physical self fell down. And that story is like, wow, man, such determination. How much more glorious is the determination we see of our great God in Christ who has seen His people He's chosen to condemn sin in Jesus and relent it from those that He has chosen. That's phenomenal. That basic story that flies from Jonah 3 that is going to be our hope this week. So I encourage you, take hope in Jonah 3. Be impressed by the resolve of others, but don't don't hope in that. Don't hope in your own accomplishments, especially when it comes to morality. Instead, let's hope together in the resolve of our great God. Let's pray. God, thank you for all that you are in Jesus. Thank you for rescuing your people. Thank you for coming, displaying your righteousness. Thank you, God, for in Jonah showing us our own evil, our own sin, but more than that, your own faithfulness to rescue your people. I pray, God, that you will now be with us as we meditate and worship you even more. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.